0: Welcome back to episode number 178 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is a podcast where we're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we are talking about part two of ineffective dust explosion isolation using material chokes. In this one, we're focusing on rotary valves, and we're doing that with Jeff Mycroft, Regional Sales Manager of Fight Canada. Jeff, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Excited to have Jeff back on this week, talking through this part two. Jeff gave some of his background in industries handling combustible dust and explosion protection last week. Uh, he works with fight Candies, based in Ontario, um, a couple of decades now in explosion protection and a lot of practical, hands-on knowledge in terms of safety systems from prevention to protection to isolation, which is kind of the topic of today's podcast. So last week we talked about the passive isolation technique of using material choke in a screw conveyor we talked about some considerations and reasons around why that has been removed from NFPA 69 again from last week we don't actually know when and how it was removed as far as i can go back in standards 2008 and it has a note saying that it was removed um, but we talked about where some practical challenge in terms of it, the design isolation method working as planned was it you know what are the different failure modes and doesn't even really work that well as a material moving device and so I didn't check any of those boxes. At the end of the day, it wasn't a great uh, technique. Um, today, we're going to talk about rotary valves, which are a accepted isolation method in NFPA 652, sorry, in NFPA 69. Uh, if you look at chapter 12 on deflagration control by passive isolation, uh, section 12.2 has passive isolation techniques, and 12.2.4 covers this topic of material chokes looking at rotary valves. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We'll talk about what is a rotary valve. What is the passive isolation technique that's used for these systems? As far as twelve point two point four is concerned, what are the two options for uh, isolating explosion? When would we use one or the other? Talk about some of the different design considerations for these type of systems. Where can they go wrong? And the different failure modes that are there. And some of the best practices for maintenance of these systems over time. Jeff, we gave some of your background last week's episode, so I think we'll jump right into the topic. What is a rotary valve? And what are the two allowable explosion or deflagration control methods in regards to passive isolation that are outlined in NFA sixty
1: nine? Okay, rotary valves are actually a common process tool before they're even identified as a explosion iso- isolation device, if designed correctly, uh, of just getting product out of vessels. It rotates, it has a series of fingers or veins. Um, and as the valve turns, product from above uh, collects in these veins and then is discharged below into a secondary uh, chamber space vessel. And it can be an explosion effective explosion isolation device, but there are specifications they have to uh, conform to. The two types are a close clearance valve, where the fingers, the distance between the fingers or the veins of the valve and the outer casing is a very very close clearance. of an inch, and that's what is called a close clearance valve. And there's also a material blocking valve where that gap can be above that 0.008 of an inch. And but you do have to have a certain amount of material on top of that rotary valve in order to make sure that it isn't pushed through and propagation can occur.
0: And so, yeah, we're going to talk through both of these. And if you're interested, this is in. 12.2.4.2 12.2.4.2 Rotary Valve Design Criteria. It talks about these two methods, deflagration isolation by flame quenching. This is close clearance. So where the gap between the vein and the housing is small enough that a flame can't pass through it. And the second method is deflagration isolation by material blocking. So having a material product layer above the valve or a material choke above the valve. So we're going to kind of talk about both of them, even though really the topic of the consideration for these two podcast episodes were around the material choke. The second approach, we're going to talk about both of these a bit in this podcast episode. It might make sense to ask: there are, there are two methods here. You know, why are there two different methods, and when might we consider one or the other? Do we ever
1: use both? Um,
0: where did this all come from?
1: I don't know the genesis of the two. I think, I think if you if you did watch uh, previ- uh, listen to the previous podcast, uh, we talked about the material blocking, and I think it was just kind of. A uh, generally accepted fact that if you had a certain amount of material above this uh, rotating valve, even if it didn't have an, uh, close clearances, the explosion wouldn't be able to travel past it. I think it is a, a flawed way of, of uh, protecting your vessel because there are many circumstances where there won't be material. Maintenance, cleaning, uh, someone leaves their rotary valve on when it and it cleans like it, it, all the product goes past it. Level sensors fail, actually quite often. So there's, it's an it's an incomplete method of. There are ways of defeating that uh, that explosion isolation device. There's, it's not a reliable way of doing it. Whereas the close clearance valves. That's not the only parameter, by the way, and both they have to have a minimum of six fingers or veins and they have to have at least two of those veins engaged in the housing at any point in time. So the explosion can't pass through. So there are other aspects to the rotary valve, but the close clearance valves, in most cases is what's like if you get an NFPA compliant rotary valve you, when you're buying it, it should be this close clearance uh, style and it and it is very, very effective. However, the caveat being there, that close clearance valves, over time, those fingers, those veins on the outer surface can wear. And that gap that was, I guess, 0.2 millimeters is probably a better way of saying it. The gap that was at max 0.2 millimeters can wear and become bigger. So maintenance may need to be done on these. Well, maintenance absolutely does need to be done on the valves, but some sort of intervention you may need to. Sometimes there's replaceable uh, edges to the fingers, other times some sort of uh, uh, reconstruction of those veins or replacement might maybe need to be done.
0: Yeah, and Jeff used a really good term here in terms of um, an NFPA compliant valve. And there there are a lot of notes in this 12.2.4 about these systems. Um, it talks about design considerations. Then it talks about these two options. Um, and that sort of has, you know, different things on the number of veins that are required, has another subsection on rotary valve with material blocking, that talks about some design considerations there about, you know, the level control switch, how it's interlocked, uh, minimum layer above the valve. And then another subsection that talks again about these closed clearance rotary valves and some of their requirements. And the point I'm trying to circle back around to is if you have the question of if this is an NPA compliant valve, it has to meet all these, if it fails any one of these tests and there is approximately 15, I'm going to say kind of points here, then, then that's a failure mode of that valve that, has been identified in NFPA 69 as being important to consider. And if it doesn't meet one of those requirements, then it's on NFPA compliant valve. You mentioned a couple of things here, Jeff, and you mentioned, actually you mentioned all, all kinds of stuff. So you mentioned alternative failure methods. I'll label this as at the moment. I think we're going to circle back to it. So you do have a guaranteed level of material, but whatever your level sensor fails. What if you have complete discharge of that material? What if you have rat holing or other sort of flow issues in your vessel so we'll say alternative failure modes then you talk about wear and maintenance over time the other one i kind of want to bring up is if you do have these close clearance valves some materials are actively difficult to use like i've heard you know fibrous materials where they're getting blocked and and chalking that system or um, blocking that system from actually moving so i don't know if those are cases where you'd also see product layers used in addition where you can't get away with having such tight tolerances on the on the veins and I think there are some solutions to that, right? Like you can have kind of rubber tipped veins and things. I don't know if, Jeff, there's anything there that is worth kind of bringing up at this stage about different types of materials, not being able to get through the rotary valves and then how that ties in.
1: That's a great point. Uh, depending on the material, rotary valves aren't useful at all. You probably, if you work in that industry, you probably know this already. But if not at the design stage, fibrous materials, like I don't know, even like large chunks of wood, Not large, but, you know, like uh, when you're shredding wood, you get uh, fines and you get some of the larger stuff Uh, in pellet industries and and things like that. You get a a wide variety and that fibrous nature of it actually gums up and plugs form above it. So the rotary can be rotating for hours and it not be pulling anything through or even worse, it can get jammed up and that excess friction can uh, can cause sometimes fires. And then that's not even including if it's outside the heat of the summer and the cool of the winter, that gap that's supposed to be 0.2 millimeters, if it's 0.2 millimeters in the summer and then the winter comes around, now the the valve won't even rotate because it cooled enough that the the outer housing can cool and cause it to not rotate or vice versa in the summer it can expand and uh, the gap is bigger. So there's a lot of performance-related issues that need to be considered depending on the industry that you're in. And so we talked about uh, atmosphere there for, for a little bit, the, the heat and cool. But some products just don't like to go through rotary valves. Or another reason why you wouldn't want to use them as well is if you're trying to do something quickly. Rotary valves are not designed for speed of, of discharge from a vessel or, or ingress into another vessel. You need exceptionally large valves in order to get large amounts of product in it. So sometimes you just might not want to use these devices for one reason or other, but if you are using them, you do need to make sure, hopefully it's the close clearance. Um, this should be the way uh, people are going, but if there's something that's in that process that doesn't allow that, then you just need to make sure that the explosion isolation, if you're using it for explosion isolation, that protection will always be there. Some really great points on the different types of materials. And
0: I think we sort of got to this point with the screw conveyor as well, <laughs> where it's like, well, let's actually talk about the ignoring the fire and safety aspect. Design considerations for an effective material moving system, which is you know maybe where you should even start. Because <laughs> um, it needs to pass that bar to be an effective way to move material before you start to look at the safety considerations. Otherwise, chances are you'll probably disarm some of the safety things that you're doing anyway because the production's not high enough or it's not working effectively. Or, you know, if it's gumming up the the fin the the veins and they're wearing down faster and you're not using a head of material, then you may end up with a case where, you know, it's not gonna kind of effectively isolate an explosion. We have seen cases where there's some explosions in the silo that's propagated through actually it's the other way around, explosions in downstream equipment propagated through conveyor screw conveyors that were believed to be isolating screw conveyors that didn't through hoppers that were believed to have had material over the rotary valves that, that didn't back in um back into dust collector. So like through three or four pieces of equipment that were all thought to have these material chokes as isolation solutions and, and all of them failed and it propagated right through the, back to the, the um, you know, the, the other system that was attached there. So the section of passive isolation techniques, 12.2.4, sort of broken a couple things on the sign considerations, And I don't know what, that's why I want to talk about. We talked about a number of them already but sort of talks about the explosion. I talked about this a bit about last week, where you have the piston, which is the explosion in a vessel pushing against the the plug of material, and then you have design considerations for the plug of material and the the rotary valve itself. So, in terms of design considerations for the plug of material, it mentions that the deflagration characteristics of the combustible dust need to be known the volume, configuration, operating characteristics of the equipment to protect it need to be included in the design considerations, other types of deflagration protection used on the vessel, and the maximum, well, we'll we'll tackle this one separately, the maximum deflagration pressure um, because that's another thing as well. But these first three, so the deflagration characteristics of the material, the volume, and any protection method used on the vessel, why do these matter in terms of thinking about your rotary valve system or thinking about your... Uh, using a head of material
1: where do where those come into play so basically uh, kst is how quickly an explosion happens very generally sorry uh, and it's related to volume uh, and Pmax is the max amount of pressure that that dust is capable of producing that in conjunction with the volume of the vessel uh, can have uh, huge effects on how much product wouldn't be needed on top of a the material blocking rotary valve if it is short small explosion less material would be needed in order to provide that barrier that's permanent but like you said on a let's say a large silo that piston is going to be much much bigger and much much longer and or if the kst is uh, a, a certain uh, number there it's going to produce a lot more pressure a lot quicker and it's going to last a lot longer a, depending on the scenarios that are involved, depending on the dust, depending on the volume of the vessel and some various other like length of diameter ratios that whatnot. So all these things would be factored, need to be factored in. So the valve itself needs to be able to withstand whatever the maximum pressure that's going to be generated uh, in this event, that that's clear, but how much product needs to be above the uh, a material blocking rotary valve is the big question mark. So, I guess just to break it down a little bit like if you have icing sugar they're really really fine dry uh, light dust in a large silo you're going to need i don't know i'm not i have no idea way uh, of determining how much you need but you need let's say multiple feet on top of this rotary valve whereas if you have let's say uh, something heavy like a corn i don't know um, even a metal dust uh, depending on the industry you're in you would need less of that uh there it would it depends on how it moves as well. Uh but you m- may need less of that because it would stay there. It would it's not going to move as easily. The larger particulates not going to pass through the veins. I'm not making this very clear but it's one of those ones where this would need to be determined in order to to ensure that you have a proper exposure and isolation method when you're using material blocking.
0: Yeah and I've been just kind of digging into I uh, have NFPA link open here so I'm looking at six uh, 69 is kind of looking through some of the appendices to see what it says. So it, it is also kind of, you know, hand wavy about how much material to put on top. It says um, material blocking method is more appropriate for deflagrations originating at the top side of the rotary valve, which I didn't actually, I, I was picturing the other way, sort of this conversation, but, you know, pushing that down into the valve is, uh, might be more effective. Um, where there's potential for deflagration originating in the bottom side of the rotary valve, Using the material blocking method, the owner and operator should take into account the potential for material displacement and possible transmission of the deflagration. Um, so that's under the the appendancy, that's under the sort of shell material. But it gives you an idea of some of the considerations. Again, so if you have a larger, a longer duration explosion, higher pressures, these are all cases where if that material is moved in enough degree that the flame is allowed to transmit, then it's not going to act as, a, as an explosion isolation device. I think that all comes into really, if you're using this, the thing about material chokes that I've I've learned over these last two podcast episodes, and I don't know if if you agree, Jeff, but they seem pretty easy to sort of hold your thumb up and say, "Oh yeah, that that will work." <laughs> and really, I think what we're saying is, no, it needs to have a pretty critical eye look at it to to use that approach. And it's probably best in this case to be using both the the close clearance veins and and the um, head of material. Although I, I'm not sure that's a general statement that can be made, you know, on this podcast. But yeah, I don't know if that's you come across every. kind of look at it and go, yep, this this looks about right. And you talked about it last week actually on the podcast. You said you ran some tests down the the Fike facility where everybody thought that the the screw conveyor was going to stop the explosion. And there's some pretty knowledgeable people there looking at that. I'm sure. And uh, and turned out that it didn't. So it's pretty easy to underestimate the power the explosion could have in in terms of removing this material. Um, anything to add on that, Jeff?
1: No, uh, you made some really good points there. Uh, to, I guess back to both. Uh, having a close clearance valve alone should be effective, but having material blocking on top that will absolutely add in case there is wear or whatnot. So uh, I guess belt and suspenders wouldn't be a, a detrimental. But if we go to just one, let's say material blocking, where you were relying on that material up there, uh, there's no specific guidance in the code or as far as I were in literature anywhere on how much of what material based on what characteristics would constitute an effective. And like you said, uh, it ends up people holding their thumb up, right? And, I, and I'm being slightly facetious. Um, it gets to a point where uh, who's making that decision on how much material is going to be effective based on what data in that test. Like you said, we actually were testing for man, uh, another manufacturer uh, and most of the people in the manufacturer thought it wouldn't uh, pass and a few of us as well and then when it did it surprised everybody so and it was malt dust which is this particular one was fairly heavy as well so at what point in time do people if they're working with icing sugar or or a heavy uh thick non-flowy dust at what point in time do you realize what well, one is one foot good is 10 feet good it's, do you need 50 with this? And I'm obviously making that one up. But like, uh, where do you, how do you determine uh, what is enough material to stop an explosion going through when there doesn't seem to be any test data on any specific dust or difference in, in dust? So it, it it's in there. It's people have used it and can use it, but you're left with a, I think, a method of A life safety method of stopping explosion from propagating from one area to another where you're kind of at some point in time, someone's making an assumption that may or may not be correct. Whereas there are close clearance valves out there and other forms of explosion protection as well, like we briefly discussed last week, uh, chemical isolation, mechanical gate valves and whatnot. There are other ways of doing this if the rotary valve doesn't work that are proven, tested and will work when called upon
0: great summary and I think it's it's really important to consider does it work when you install it <laughs> step one <laughs> and and some of these things we're talking about you know it just won't work when installed <laughs> so they sort of fail that that barrier and then there's considerations of okay does it work when installed during abnormal operate or not not even abnormal operations but non-intended use operations so startup shutdown when other equipment fail level sensors that sort of stuff so that's like level two and then level three is okay what's going to happen over time um and that brings me sort of around to to this question of okay well i have a system installed let's say that is close clearance and has a head of material that way we can kind of talk about all the best practices what are some of the you know kind of best practices specific guidelines that people should be looking at over time to maintain these these safety systems so like you said they act upon
1: act correctly when they're called upon that's a good question and it really depends on the process and the technology using so the close clearance valves, the biggest thing on that is all the other things are, if all the other things are compliant, the thing that you have to worry about most is that clearance. So if you have an abrasive product, uh, corn is very, very abrasive or cements and stones like that, depending on what industry you're in, uh, that can wear down things extremely, extremely quickly. So again, it might not be the best form of protection, but even if it, is being used you just need to check that clearance is being uh sustained over time and what that looks like depends on the application the good if you're gonna have to go in there regularly and and maintain it or adjust those clearances then you probably want a rotary valve that um can you can use in situ you can have the whole inside slide out to the side without removing the valve so those are performance upgrades that might be worth uh, looking into. Whereas if you're using, say, material blocking, uh, then there's a whole bunch of things that need to be maintained. You have to make sure the level sensors are, uh, you probably should have redundant level sensors because they do tend to fail quite regularly. But if not, you need to make sure that that is being maintained, that not only the level sensor, but the material level that's on there being maintained. You have to have strict maintenance procedures. when people clean or, or work on that and they drop product out, they need to make sure they reestablish that level of material above and depending on how it works below the rotary valve in order to maintain that, uh, that barrier. So I guess, long story short, it really depends on the process itself. That, that is, and You just need to make sure that all the things that can happen. Uh, to compromise the effectiveness of the system are addressed and addressed regularly, and that maintenance is really dependent on the process. So, like icing sugar, I keep on using going back to it. Actually, ice sugar can be pretty abrasive. But let's say you use flour. Flour going through a revalve, uh, can the clearance will stay good for long periods of time. Uh, not as much maintenance. Not as much plugging, depending on moisture, whatever. So they can go longer, whereas things that are more abrasive, they might have to check instead of monthly or quarterly or once a year on certain things. They might need to check weekly, and that can't be established prior to installation.
0: So the circle's around to if you're doing an effective hazard analysis out of your facility, um, these are some of the things that should be brought to the attention of the owner and operator. And if, you're, if you're paying for a really, um, we'll say, low-cost dust hazard analysis, versus you know, some of the ones that are more higher costs that are out there, providers, the higher cost ones are going to give you more likelihood of covering these type of topics of, okay, you don't just have the system or don't have it, but how do you maintain over time? Um, in terms of you know maintain those clearances, what should the inspection frequency be? How do we learn what the inspection frequency should be if we don't know the answer ahead of time? Level sensors, redundant sensors, start up and shut down procedures, and I'll add in training, um, training folks on why the level of material is important. So you kind of uh, almost off hand a bit said adjusting the clearances. Well, if we're allowing employees to adjust in clearances, we really need to train them on why those clearances are important. Otherwise, we already know what's going to happen. It's going to get stuck. Somebody's going to increase the, the clearance because it gets stuck too often. And then there you've lost your isolation protection. Um, so having that employee engagement, having the employee training set there so that they know why they're that way. Not to mention rotary valves are a challenge for hand injuries and, and other things like that as well, which needs some pretty extensive training. But they all really come r- around to evaluating, understanding your hazards, understanding the control methods that you have in place at design. If they don't work when you design and install them, that's not great. Um, but also, you know, are they working as the system ages and over time and how do we make sure that they're, they're continuing to work safe? That's a good
1: point. I, I think... You probably the uh, really big one is training. I think you could probably do an episode just on training alone. Uh, why it's necessary? Uh, because you can, depending on the method depending on the method of protection you're using, it can be worked around, and and that's why it's good to have a system in place that is hard to or virtually impossible to. Like it, it will work when it's called upon. Whereas things like material blocking, where you can without if someone hasn't been trained properly, you, you will lose that protection.
0: Well, I think, and I will reference, so back in episode 161 and 160 of the podcast, we played an Ask Me Anything with uh, David Hakes from XV Products on operator safety during handling cleanup hazardous dust. And he actually talked quite a bit in that episode, I'm not sure which one, the, the first half or the second half, around um, things like hand injuries with rotary valves and that. So if you're, you're listening to this and, and this is a system that you use a lot, you want to know more about that, um, those two episodes might be something that have have information that's more that's helpful for you as well. Um I don't think we got so much into the fire and explosion safety that we're talking about here, but a little bit more onto the the occupational safety. Good point. Great. Well and anything else, Jeff? I mean, we talked two episodes on material chokes, if you can believe it. <laughs> 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 and and I can, um because there have been lots of cases where these type of systems just just don't work. Either designed incorrectly, designed not uh, thinking about you know the the typical upset conditions that might happen, not maintained over time, interlocks not being maintained, sensors not being maintained. And I will, I guess, I got to I got to do this last point because I had a big thing in my notes here, and this is a whole another needs another podcast episode, but I'll, I'll say it as a statement here: the reason that people gravitate in terms of process safety perspective you're a process safety engineer, you're a process safety consultant, one of the reasons people gravitate towards systems like this is that they're a passive isolation system. It's even in NFPA 69 as a passive isolation system. What that means is that the actual mechanics of what happened is, is passive. It's there. The problem with passive systems and sort of inherent safety in general is that it is an excellent approach, an excellent lens to look at safety. But you need to think about if you're translating risk. So if you have a passive system that is detrimentally controlled on a a level sensor, it's not a passive system. (laughs) It's an active system. There's a level sensor that tells you whether or not that passive system in place. So you've actually translated your risk from what you're thinking is a passive, inherently safer approach that's farther down the hierarchy of controls. But if it's controlled by an active system, or even more important, if it's controlled by an inspector coming and looking at it every day, um, well, then now you're into administrative controls, which are even even weaker. So if you're translating that risk in, into other areas, it, we, we really need to think about whether or not that actually is a passive safety system at the end of the day. And that's sort of a, a way bigger topic. I didn't brought Jeff, Jeff to talk about that one, so I'll leave him with any comments he has on it. But just something I've I've seen a lot where, yeah, if you say something's further up or down the hierarchy of controls, terms of being a, a passive system or inherently safer design system you need to make sure it's not controlled by some other thing that's a less effective administrative control or, or active system and this is a great case of it headed material is a you know a passive isolation device but if it's controlled by a level sensor that's an active engineering device. those things fail um fail much more commonly so i don't know jeff i'll i i, I teed you up for that massive question <laughs> um anything else to add there or the other alternative is just uh, any last comments for the the audience today on this topic of material chokes, um, screw conveyors, and rotary valves.
1: I think you summarized it really well, and I was really good. I just actually have one. We kind of referenced it, that there's a ton of things in 1224 uh, and tells you how to what needs to be done. The one thing that's in there that we didn't mention is the rotary has to shut off in the event of an explosion uh, or fire. The rotary has to turn off so it's, it's not conveying burning product into that secondary uh, area so it the reason why you, you keep me up on that is because it, it it is a passive system but there are active things that are, are associated with that and a lot of people get an nfpa compliant valve and then stick it below their process but then don't interlock it with the system and that has to shut off uh, when there's an event in order for it to work so i guess uh last little thing read all of the uh it's available online. You can read it uh, for free if you're getting a rotary valve and implementing it. Read all of the points, the qualifications, and just make sure it does shut down when the system, when there is an event.
0: Yeah, and it, it's we we sort of made it sound like it's a big s- section. It has a lot of bullet points, but it's not very many words. <laughs> probably take you about you know two and a half minutes to actually read the like. It's not not even two and a half minutes. It's not a huge amount of reading. So if you go to six nine. Number 69, um, that will pull up NFP 69 for you. There should be a free access button there. At least there is today. I hope there will be in the future. If you're listening to this, um, you can open up the newest version, go to 12.2.4, and read through it. And there's not, you know, there's not a, a, it's not really complicated, heavy reading. So don't be nervous of it that way. But it just does have a lot of bullet points about number of veins, about the interlocking, about control switches. And my guess is, and I don't know this, but that each one of those has been added each time. We have a failure of this system, and that was sort of the failure mode that was identified. Um, and then they've sort of been added over time. So we have this list of ways that uh, rotary valves fail um, with and without this material blocking capability. Great. Okay, well, I think we'll we'll let Jeff off the hook there. Um, I appreciate, again, your time, Jeff, the work that you do in industry in Canada, um, throughout the United States. Um, I do appreciate the fact that the group at FIKE is doing a lot of testing to back up and extend the science for combustible dust. It's really helpful to generate that level of understanding with, you know, doing a risk assessment, recommending equipment, but also backing it up by uh, going in and blowing things up by lack of a better term in a safe manner where we can evaluate the consequences. Um, but it is a, a way to move the industry forward, and I know Fike's really been on the top of doing that for, you know, longer longer than I've been alive, certainly, and and quite a bit longer than that from my understanding. So. A big kudos to the group down there in in Missouri. A big group kudos to to fight Canada and then fight Europe and UK and, and everywhere else in the world as well. Um, and I appreciate the work that you're doing, specifically Jeff, here in Canada, keeping us safe um, with the with the work that you're doing.
1: Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate those kind words. And uh, right back at you. Uh, not to be a love fest here, but like knowledge is saving lives. Knowledge is is what you get uh, is key in this industry. And your podcast and your website is really driving that right now and it's very very helpful i've known many people that met out on the road and talked to them about various issues and they've actually said they're using your resources um, and to drive them forward so it's getting out there and it is definitely helping
0: i appreciate it um we will have a way if you want to connect with jeff to to contact him at slash uh, 177 or 178 for these last two episodes or 47 if you want to if you want to go back a couple of years and 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 go to the Canadian regulatory framework that we covered um, a long time ago. I'm all the way to contact him through the show notes there. Thanks again, and I look forward to a chance to get you on the podcast again, Jeff. Thanks, and uh, have a great day. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney, and Jeff Mycroft, Regional Sales Manager from Fight Canada. He's based in Ontario, and we'll be talking about ineffective dust explosion isolation using material chokes. And This is part two of a two-part series. So in part one, we talked about screw conveyors. Um, which have been removed from NFPA69 as an explosion protection device, or at least as a, an isolation device. In this episode, we talked about rotary valves. So, double: what is a rotary valve, um, and what are the two protection methods that are allowed in NFPA69. So these are covered in 12.2.4.2 in the 2019 version of 69, and one is close clearance valves, and the second is product layer above the valve, and that standard then outlines a bunch of the considerations on using these systems. So we talked about different ways that these systems need to be designed in order to work effectively, needing to take into account the size of the vessel, the strength of the explosion, the pressure generated by the explosion. That's going to govern whether or not you know the, the, the valve fractures or, or breaks um, when the explosion happens or whether or not the veins fracture or break. So there's this sort of safety as design. There's also the effectiveness of a rotary valve in general as a material moving device, those considerations are going to come into play. Uh, and then there's the normal and abnormal operation of those devices. So if you're emptying out the content of the silo, what does that mean in terms of your isolation devices? If you're doing cleaning operations, uh, if you have cases where you don't have a solid plug material, um, how are you you know, guiding for that? What administrative controls are in place? What engineering controls are in place? And what passive controls are in place to identify any challenges that might arise through that? We talked about a number of ways that these type of systems may fail. And generally... I think one summary just might be that material chokes aren't that reliable of a safety system in general. Um, they're hard to design in terms of you know actually controlling and stopping the isolation uh, and isolating explosion from happening. And there are these other design considerations that come into play as well. Um, and I think the the big note here is if you are using these types of systems for your explosion isolation devices, um, uh, probably makes sense to just go at least read section 12.2.4 in fp 69 and just look at the different bullet points there. Again, it's not a huge section. There are a lot of bullet points, <laughs> um, but you can kind of read through this about 15 or so, and we'll give you an idea of the kind of design considerations that need to be put in place in order to have a valve that's going to function effectively when needed to um, isolate explosion. So that's it for this week's podcast episode. As I mentioned on um, the, the conclusion of the podcast, you want to connect with Jeff and do so at dustsafetyscience.com slash 178 or 177 for last week's podcast episode. I uh, appreciate everything you're doing interestingly like can bust with us and making them safer with the work you ever you do every day. If you see these sort of systems on the road, hopefully this is helpful for you to understand um, some of the considerations that go into place when they're being used, how they can be improved, and how we can improve these systems together moving forward um, through education and getting that knowledge out there about when they they might be working in the future. So thank you as always. I look forward to talking again next week on the podcast.